This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Today, I sit down with author and teacher, Wendy Alsip. Many of you are familiar with the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. What you may not be as familiar with is Wendy. Wendy began her public ministry as Deacon of Women's Theology and Teaching at Mars Hill under Mark Driscoll. Wendy shares the freedom she experienced teaching women at Mars Hill. She also shares the attitude of meanness Mark displayed. You'll hear how she clung to her faith in Jesus when things began to unravel, and she will encourage you to do the same. She also shares her own personal journey of forgiveness, which she has written about in her book, I Forgive You. And then we dig into something she is super passionate about, and that is women and theology, where we flesh out a little of what it means to have a Jesus hermeneutic. This is a nod your head while saying amen kind of episode. So I would be grateful if you would share it with a friend or with all of your friends on social media. Before we launch into today's conversation, are you in charge of women events at your church or in a position of inviting speakers for an event? If so, I would love to serve your women through speaking at your next event. A few topics I frequently speak on include rethinking comparison, beauty and brokenness from Genesis until now, gratitude practice beyond November and how it changes our brain's chemistry, the value of introducing a weekly Sabbath rhythm into your life, and viewing community through the lens of Jesus's community. I'm also open to discuss a teaching series that better fits your audience. For more details, visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash speaking or email me directly at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, here's my conversation with Wendy Alsip. Good morning, Wendy, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here to have this conversation. And what I typically do before we dive into what we're going to talk about is just ask everybody a little bit about their early faith journey. How did you first come to know Christ or begin walking with him? What does that journey look like for you? My parents came to Christ a little bit after I was born, and they had a real profound um, conversion experience, and they were really... Um, solidly committed to God. So they started taking me to church very consistently, you know, throughout my life. Mm -hmm. It took a while for my faith to become my own, Mm -hmm. but I was a pretty earnest, I was a pretty earnest, good girl. (laughs) Yes. But then I had to learn a lot about the grace of God and Mm -hmm. um, my own sin. But um, also I didn't have to be convinced of my sin. I had to be convinced of God's forgiveness because I was very guilt oriented. The Lord worked through me over many years to really bring me confidence and joy 
and peace in him. Um, so really, I came a fairly, fairly early in life. Well, so you eventually went into ministry. Was that like right out of high school that you kind of knew you wanted to do that? Or was that also more of a process? No, I knew fairly early on that I I really loved God. I really loved the Bible and mm-hmm. God had really worked in my heart through youth group. Yeah. And so I knew early on, I wanted to do something for him. And what I, I ended up majoring in education so that I could be like a lay missionary where I supported myself. Yeah. And I went to South Korea for one year, um, teaching English in an international Christian school, but I got very sick over there. I got diabetes. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So I came back home and was really limping along physically, trying to get my feet back under me. And then I uh, got involved in church planting. And that's really, I think, where the Lord has drawn my heart in ministry. Yeah. So I teach. It's my field. It pays my bills. Um, but it's a, it's a ministry, but tent maker, I guess they call it. I mean, I'm a grateful. So I have some friends who they say every church planner... <laughs> This may be something people don't want to hear. Every person that goes in ministry needs to have a lay job first because number one, you need to be able to pay your bills if something happens in ministry. I mean, we can say that about every profession, but number two, you need to know what it's like to go out and be with people who aren't in ministry. Right. Yeah. (laughs) They have a few other things to say about that, but I won't um, dive into that before. Well, it's just not the time, but anyways, (laughs) You know quite a bit about that because the reality is you did eventually uh, serve as the deacon in charge of women's theology and training at Mars Hill in Seattle. And so share your experience of stepping in to that role and just the ways you were able to serve women during that time really being a time when it was just starting. I would say there was probably some controversy around the role that you served in. Right. And I think when I'm kind of um, being a cynical post Mars Hill, looking back with analysis, I wonder sometimes if I was like the token female to show that they weren't misogynist. But Mm -hmm. um, the flip side of that, maybe I was, and I'll own it if I was. um, But the flip side of it was that they really did give me a lot of freedom to teach women theology. Now, the interesting thing is, so I walked into a class that was already named Practical Theology. Okay. And I interpreted that name as meaning our theology should matter in our practical daily lives. Mm -hmm. I think really, honestly, what it meant before I got there may have been like women um, serving in their homes and that being kind of a practical way of living out um, God's design for them. But I saw it more as what is theology? What is the knowledge of God? And then Mm -hmm. why would that make a difference in our daily lives? And I I thought a lot more about like fear and anxiety, uh, confidence as a daughter of Christ than uh, roles in the home. So I didn't treat it as a roles in the home kind of thing, but I think that's kind of more how it had been treated in the past. Okay. But I will say they gave me a boatload of freedom. Yeah. And I didn't micromanage and I wasn't undermining a mark in it. So much was not even on my radar at that point. I really, at that point, I just thought Mars Hill was, to me, it was this great thing because I was coming out of similar theology, but that separated you from culture. 
And Mark was much more kind of culturally relevant, Mm -hmm. you know, and so they had a lot of outreaches, particularly through musicians Mm -hmm. into the community. And to me, I just thought that was great, incredible stuff. And so I was really excited to be a part of that and taking these, we'd have a lot of young ladies coming out of UW and they're, they're more from a much more feminist background. And I'm just teaching them the deep things of the word, the character of God. So even as things at many levels were horrible, there were also some things that were really cool. Well, I mean, absolutely. Like, isn't that a lot of things? Now we're not talking (laughs) about abuse or anything like that should continue, but there is good that comes out of bad. There is bad that also exists with good. So it, it's really narrow-minded of us to think otherwise. Right. And, you know, my burden is that it's hard for a lot of people then to interpret what was good and what was bad. Yeah. Um, so how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater when that bathwater was really, really dirty. I'm always burdened and concerned for those that I think did throw a lot of teaching away because they could not see how to disengage it or detach it yeah. from the abuse or misuse of scripture. Well, and that's um, where my struggle sometimes with foundation comes in, because I think you and I are going to talk about that a little bit because you didn't throw out of that, throw that out. And part of knowing the character of God and just some basic context of the Bible, I think does help you cling to God when everything around you is going haywire. Do you agree with that? Yeah, very much so. Um, And, you know, Mars Hill's struggles were not my first rodeo with church struggles. So I came into Mars Hill, I I think I was 32 when I got there. Mm. And I had been around the block with various churches in the past. And I'd seen some really crappy, if I can say that on your podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can say worse <laughs> if you'd like. <laughs> um, but um, I had had some really terrible, I mean, I could tell you some stories about pastors long before Mark. And so I'd had mm. this, and, and you know what really helped me with those previous pastors, one in particular, who was a quite the fundamentalist preacher, you know, he Mm -hmm. was like, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. And thankfully I was reading the Bible on my own. And I'm like, "Mm, you know, and I went to him and I'm like, but you know, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. And he, and I remember him telling me something like, well, that's just the new evangelicals. They're misusing that. So we can't talk about love. I'm like, but the Bible says it's the greatest command. And this is as a teenager, but that kind of realism, oh. uh, reality and, and understanding as a teenager, this man is claiming that the Bible says this, this, and this, and I'm reading my Bible and it doesn't. And so then yeah. I could separate him. He's just misusing scripture. Hmm. And scripture instead was this precious thing to me because when I had this dissonance with this other guy, scripture helped me to say, yeah, right. It's okay that you're not feeling right about that because look what Jesus says. And um, so that foundation has been um, crucial for me over many, many years. And really what I've settled into now in terms of discipleship is really just in our little church plant, 
how do you read the Bible? Are you reading the Bible? What's the context? You know, Mm. what's the genre? Yep. When was this said? Who was it said to, you know, and, and training people not to read the Bible or be able to, for someone to come up to them and say, well, the Bible says this and kind of twist it to whatever, but for us to have the confidence, we don't need a theology degree to have the confidence. The scripture can be taken at face value. If we know just some nuggets of how to read and interpret it, a a basic, simple hermeneutic really equips Mm. us from being taken advantage of. Well, it makes me want to rewind because something that you said is that youth group really played a lot into your heart for God. Is there anything that you feel like took place in those formative years that helped lay that foundation for you of like, no, I'm going to be in the word. This is what I have to rely on, not necessarily man. I think that youth group was imperfect. My youth group was oh, a everybody's group. is. Yeah, right. But what it did was it gave me a frame of reference for a culture that cares about obeying God. Mm. And what was really profound to me was that I had more fun at youth activities mm. than I did in the secular ones. Okay. And that gave me some social safety okay. during a time when I was really you know, I wasn't grounded at that point. I was starting to become grounded because, because youth group and because um, I would go to Christian camp, Christian camp really got a hold of my heart. I mean, it's just people having fun without guilt. Yeah. Fun without guilt. I mean, that was something that my peers in secular school were not, it's a lot of guilt (laughs) if you went out and had fun with them. Yeah. I mean, Um, that's a good, that is a good perspective though. And I say that because, you know, I mean, I have young kids, I um, lead a middle school, small group. And mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, am I getting them in the word enough? They're not listening to me. I mean, you know, like these things, these narratives that you just naturally play in your mind because you're like, am I doing the right things? Um, And the fact that fun is had in a safe place is really, really important because at that moment in their lives, that's what they care about most. Right. That's right. (laughs) That's a good word for me. So I don't know if anybody listening, but I mean, yeah, you know, it's because we're not the one who get to foster someone else's love of scripture, but we can pour in and give them a place where they become curious. Mm -hmm. And it also has to be a fun, safe place. Yeah. I'm at that age. So that that's, yeah, that's good for me to hear. Well, This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest 
and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. With the success of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, I mean, Wendy, I just want to hear all the things, but (laughs) I won't do that. I mean, I feel like now the just the issues with power struggles and abuse in the church has gone gone from the back burner to much more front and center. And so um, I don't even know exactly what I want to ask you about that, except for maybe what you're willing to share about your experience. Sure. Were you able to keep teaching as things were blowing up behind the scenes? Um, yeah, share a little bit of that with us. Listening to it was very cathartic for me. Um, yeah. Okay. Because it was the first time, um, not my story, but our story had mm-hmm. been told after. See, uh, the big part, I left in 2008. And, you know, not for everybody to micro know all the details of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, but I believe that that, that particular issue was recounted in episode seven. Okay. And it was. Uh, Mark had fired two elders and yep. it just shook my, what I thought my understanding was of how we thought about elders, what was an elder supposed to be. And I thought we had a plurality of elders and Mark had previously taught that all the elders were on the same level, same level. So I didn't okay. understand how Mark could even fire elders. And um, it took us months. I'm like on Mars Hill's website. I'm kind of a public figure in Mars Hill. I'm leading the women's retreats. I think we had like 400 women at that retreat that I was leading right in the middle of this conflict. Well, and you had already published some books at this point too, right? Yeah, uh, my book was being published at this point, Practical Theology for Women. So um, my my ex-husband now, but my husband at the time and I uh, wanted to talk to Mark about this because this is something is really wrong here. We had been in this other elders community group. So they were, I thought Mark had discipled us to respect Mm. the authority of this elder who had been leading our community group. And we were reasonably amenable to that. We respected Paul. So it took months for us to get in with Mark, even as a deacon of women's theology and teaching. It took like three months and wow, we had to insist, you know, no, it needs to be sooner. But he didn't have anything on his calendar, according to his secretary. I couldn't talk to him anyway. I had to go through the secretary. It reminds me of trying to like get in with the queen and you have to go through really? a secretary, even though she might be your family member. But we finally got into him and just realized that he was not going to change. And he was just convinced that what he was doing was loving and that our, and we were just confronting him, you know, but the Bible says this and it says this about language and it says this about love and you're talking this way and, you know, you hmm. have really excoriated, you know, you have really harmed the reputation of this other guy while also saying there was no moral sin. So anyway, that okay. was 2008 when we finally sat down with him and we knew we couldn't continue. But what Mars Hill did that was actually really helpful to us was they expired everybody's membership and you had to sign anew that you were in full agreement with the elders to re-up your membership. Did they do that yearly or this was after the two elders were fired? 
This was after the two elders were fired because there was such controversy with it. And they okay. were rewriting the bylaws and such. And that just gave me the freedom to say, because there was this part of me that's like, no, no, the gospel equips oh. us to reconcile. You know, I love Paul. I know Paul loves Christ. I love Mark. Mark loves Christ. We're all on the same team. We can reconcile. Hmm. And really believing for a long time, no, we'll be able to reconcile. We'll be able to work this out. And then that when they expired our membership, that's when I finally realized this ship has sailed. You know, yeah. there's no going back. And I, there was no way we could sign and say we didn't have problems. And so the Lord really gave us the freedom at that point to walk away. And thankfully, there was another really good church in Seattle mm. that we naturally fell in that I'm very thankful for. Prior to this event in 2008, had your experience been very healthy and good? Because it sounds like things were kind of compartmentalized anyways, because it's so big. Or had you kind of seen, whoa, there's some not so great things going on? I had seen several not good things. But the difference was up to that point, if we confronted, it was handled. Okay. And that's actually how I became deacon of women's ministry and training. We had some kind of big conflict with Mark on whatever member site we had at the time. And we were like, what just happened? Why are you... Like we stumbled into an issue that we were fairly new, so we didn't know they had been debating it, you know, for a long time. Right, right. And my husband confronted Mark. We got down privately with him and he confronted him. He's like, This is not right. And Mark got on that member site and apologized. Okay. So there were like at least three situations that I remember in which Mark repented. So Mark was so rough and so gifted. But because I had seen him at times be confronted and repent, I had hope. You know, I thought yeah. we were heading in the right direction. Right. Okay? So you've got this incredibly gifted guy rough around the edges, but he's got folks around him who are confronting him. And, and he's listening. He was Seems listening like. at least, you know, now I look back and there are a lot of times he wasn't listening. But in the time, things that were closest to me, he right. did. And I was kind of unaware of some of the other things as well. And then also I had wrong understandings about some things. There's some things I assumed Mark's truth and um, didn't understand what the real circumstances were. Mm. But then that was really the first time where we knew he was in sin and we confronted him and he really dug in. No, no, this is not sin. I'm like, how the heck, how the heck can you say these kind of things about someone and it not be sin? Wow. But my issue, people had a lot of issues with Mark. My issue always in the end was he was a jerk. I mean, it's really, I mean, that was the thing he would, he sinned with his words and people didn't like some of his views on women. I'm pretty conservative on women. Right. So I, I totally get it. So it wasn't always the view, but it was the delivery. <laughs> yeah. The disrespect, the jokes at women's expense, you know, like uh -huh. you say that men are supposed to be um, protecting, but you expose your wife, mm. you know, from the pulpit in really horrible ways. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going on and on, but no, yeah, no. Well, I mean, I guess my question too, is once you did leave, it sounds like you found a safe place in another church community. 
But what was it like emotionally and spiritually for you? Because the reality is, Mars Hill or anywhere else, anybody who has stepped away from their church community, there's this oftentimes sense of like blackballing or you just lose such for people who've been raised in the church, like that is so much of your community. Yeah. Like it is so much. I mean, it's your friendships, it's your kids' friendships. There's just a lot invested in that. And so sounds like you'd gone through that previously, but what was it like to be on staff emotionally and spiritually to walk away? It was very, very lonely and very mm. hard. The thing I, I think about a lot as I, w- I was fortunate in that I had a core group, um, my two previous community group leaders, or three, I think, all three of my previous community group leaders left around that time. Okay. Some of my closest, my closest friends left at the same time. So mm, that helped. Um, that was helpful. But what really disturbed me, and maybe this, I'm a math teacher, fairly logical debate person, the dissonance between folks going on in the name of Christ and the community Uh with this kind of like blatant disregard for scripture while they're also the fundamentalists claiming the Bible Mm -hmm. as their guide, that dissonance about drove me crazy. Mm -hmm. And so I would write a ton on my blog and I was always convicted that I wanted to try not to be like a cynical, bitter woman yeah. talking about Mars Hill, but I would go through so many principles and I would talk about them as principles, not people, yes. but like, Hey, don't we all agree on edifying language? Don't we all agree on what it means to love and that love is more important than hope or faith. And, but that was, it, that was the dissonance that almost drove me crazy. It's like, how can all of you people that I thought we all agreed mm-hmm. on the authority of scripture, but the authority of scripture has to mean something. It has to mean something when it says these very explicit things on how to respond to your enemy. And how can we, how can all of you guys, you, you know, 6,000 people, we've all been sitting under the same teaching. How can you go on and on and on listening to this guy when the Bible says this so clearly? (sighs) And then that's why the podcast was so cathartic because I felt like I had been banging my head against mm. the wall yeah. for nearly 10 years. No, what was it? Maybe, I guess it was about seven years before it came out. Yeah. Banging my head up against the wall and Mark's just going on and on and people are praising him and he's growing the church and I'm just banging my head up against the walls. Guys, guys, don't you see this in scripture? And so I finally wept. When I listened yeah. to that one particular episode about the one that was around the time that we left episode seven, because it was the first time I could mourn it because I had always been striving to get others to believe it. Yeah. Oh, that speaks a lot into so many different types of abuse, right? Right. I really resonate with Prince Harry right now. Mm. Like mm. I am so mad for him. And I realize now It's because I spent so long being labeled as like a cynical, bitter woman, but I'm just trying to say, but no, the Bible says this, and you did this, and you really harmed these people. And so it was so much of a blessing to me to hear that episode and just hear someone else say what had happened so clearly. Yeah. 
And I had to pull over on the road and I just finally sobbed because I'd never mourned it because I was always just trying to get people to believe it. And now people believed it and I could say, okay, that was really, really hard and cry. Wow. And that's a lot of years later, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, because I do think that applies to like, I mean, you use Prince Harry. There's people who've been in abusive situations where they are labeled a certain mm -hmm. way and people don't believe them. Mm -hmm. And then if it ever does come out, it's like relief, right? Like, okay, right. I don't have to strive. I don't have to try so hard anymore to get someone to believe me. Right. Well, something that I love about your story and we kind of talked about earlier is even you being wounded terribly um, by God's people, you did not uh, give up your faith. You clung to God. You clung to his word. And at one point you, well, I won't go into what you wrote yet, but tell me with your understanding of the word, with the way that you have read the Bible for years and years and years, and you did at one point actually say like, I loved the word. I was in the Bible long before I knew Mark Driscoll. And so I'm going to keep being in the word and I'm going to keep loving God in the Bible long past him. And so is there anything else that shaped that beyond just your previous experience of being hurt in the church? Well, even as I was going through it, through it with Mark, I would, you know, kind of keep testing myself against the scripture. Like, mm. isn't this what the Bible says? And, you know, sometimes I would go study deeper. There's this one part, and it's actually been life-changing to me, that Mark interpreted Genesis 3's discussion on women after the fall as a woman's desire will be to take control from her husband. Um, it says your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And mm -hmm. so Mark interpreted that as, you know, this is women's desire to control their husband and it sent me down for a little while I believed him and then over time it sent me down this rabbit hole of is that what it really means mm. and that wrestling with God I just feel like the spirit wants us to understand scripture accurately yeah and so those quiet moments with the the spirit and study and you realize oh no okay oh and that's beautiful what it actually says is beautiful. And I've had that moment over and over again where someone says something from scripture that it's, you know, it makes you tense. You're like, ah, and you're, you know, maybe you're at this crossroads. What that's what scripture says. Why would I want to follow that? But I've never been disappointed if I go to scripture myself and study it. God has yeah. never not blessed me by mm. that never not encouraged me by that always what I come out with is more precious so in that sense being pushed to scripture by someone like that has always actually benefited me yeah well and so you said something earlier too about just like basic hermeneutics and I don't want to assume that everybody understands even what that means because I do know what you're saying in the sense of you know you hear something from the pulpit you hear something from your Bible study. It's not wrong to not take it at face value. The best thing you can do is go home and pray to the Lord and then dig into that scripture and ask him to tell you, you know, affirm it or deny what you heard. And we have so many resources mm -hmm. nowadays too to say, okay, I am going to get on austinprecepts.org and look up, you know, all these different translations and what do all these mm -hmm. things say, but mm -hmm. we have to take that step. And so when you say basic 
hermeneutic. What would you say to someone who is like not well-versed in scripture, who's wondering if that's true? Yeah. Well, I wrote a book on this. <laughs> that's right. You did. <laughs> so that's, that's what I tried to outline and is the Bible good for women? And I, I was very deliberate with the um, subtitle seeking clarity and confidence mm -hmm. through a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. To me, a Jesus-centered hermeneutic, some might call it a redemptive hermeneutic, but the bottom line is that ultimately when Jesus gets on the road to Emmaus and he tells his disciples after the resurrection, he's like, all that that was said in the Old Testament was preparing you for me. Mm -hmm. And so the Old Testament tends to be our hard part, and so if you get the perspective, well, the hermeneutic is that the point of the Old Testament was Jesus and, you know, start looking for Jesus in the Old Testament or what does this point to us? A lot yep. of things just point to the fact that we need Jesus. Yep. Look at these, look at the horrendous things people will do in the name of God because everyone's trying to do what they think is right. Look mm -hmm. at their inability to keep the law. And so we look at these things in the Old Testament and without that hermeneutic, you can be like, why are they doing this? You know, am I supposed to do this? Well, no, actually they're sinning and they're showing why we need a savior. Christ. Yeah. So I, I, a Jesus centered hermeneutic, how does the knowledge of Jesus help us put together these pieces in the Old Testament? Okay. So I'm sorry. I'm thinking through that because again, I know exactly what you're saying and it, it can be, I just feel like it can be so hard when you don't know the word from start to finish. And then there's right. so many people who most of their teaching is coming from what they hear in church, which is absolutely vital. Um, I don't know. And I know you don't have an answer for like making people get in the word, but I just like, it's so vital. Like don't miss out on the blessing, the joy it comes from seeing Jesus in the old Testament. Right. Right. And I tried to give four kind of nugget principles because we'll shut down. How many, how many Bible readings have shut down? Yeah. Because you get to some point in the old Testament and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah, um, it's so it's a lot. It's, it's really heavy. <laughs> it is right. And so I tell folks, look for things that are pictures of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So even like um, Cain and Abel, where the righteous dies and the unrighteous is spared. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, certainly in something like the Passover, that's very obvious about right. Jesus. So you, you have pictures of Jesus throughout. Yeah. You have stories that show our need for Jesus, like Judah and Tamar, or, you know, throwing Joseph into the pit, so much of Judges, the whole entire book of Judges, it says it pretty clearly. There was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So this is what we're capable of when we don't have a king. King Jesus is the one we need. We need his standard of righteousness. So look for stories that show our need for Jesus, mm. stories that are pictures of Jesus, a lot of stories that are how God preserved the line of Jesus right. from Adam through Abraham. So the whole story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50 is the supernatural way that God preserved the line, you know, Isaac's line and kept him That's from right. dying out. Tons of stories like that. Johnny Erickson Tato was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I never even thought about this one, but the story of, I always want to say JL, but it's like Yael or whatever, where 
you know, she drives the stake through the man's skull, right? And you have a t-shirt. I don't think you make it anymore, but don't you have the shirt? Yes, I do. I, I saw that on your website and I was like, I need to ask Wendy if she still has a few of those. I could use that. You can order them through Etsy. Oh, yeah. yes. Well, but she was saying like how that story, you know, it says in Genesis that a man will come and crush the enemy's skull. And I was like, Oh, that is a picture of Christ too. It is, it's the crushing of the enemy's head that we're, it's all pointing towards Christ. And that is one that I hadn't even thought about because instead I'm always like, whoa, that woman's awesome. She just, but that's great because I hadn't thought of that either. That's really neat. I know. Right. And so I was in so blessed by her because she and her husband have read through the Bible the 18th year in a row they're starting on. And I'm like, oh, wow. And that's not um, an accolade as much as it is like those things come to life when you right. keep going through and going through and right. realizing that scripture only grows the more you read it. You don't get more bored of it. Right. Let and me. so it yeah. was very fascinating. But in your newest book, at least I think this is your newest one. I Forgive You. Is that right. your newest mm-hmm. one? You weave some of your personal journey of forgiveness um, in with the story of Joseph. And how we witness him forgive. And I know there are things in your life that it's not just what happened at Mars Hill that, you know, you have to forgive. It's other things as well. And so what hope do we find in Joseph's story when we are just struggling so bad to forgive and we're broken and we're just not sure the way forward? Well, I think Joseph, he's not um, a roadmap. So it's not like four steps to go through. But he whets your appetite for what God is able to do. And we were just working with through Joseph's story with the youth. And I try to, you know, encourage them, look, your story's different, but your God is the same. So what are we seeing about the character of God? And they were telling me, we we just got to the point where Joseph reveals himself. The week before was Judah's repentance and um, where Joseph reveals himself. And they're like, well, that God is good. Mm. one kid said that God is mysterious and I love that right you know that God is working good but in ways that we're not seeing in ways that don't make sense until finally it's revealed at the end and you're like oh okay so I think Joseph what's her appetite for what God is able to do beneath the scenes yeah and nothing is more profound to me than Judah's repentance And that's, you know, when Joseph reveals himself, it's after Judah stood up to take the place of Benjamin. So up to this point, I think Joseph has been pretty harsh with his brothers and making them to bring Benjamin to him because he has no assurance they're not going to do to Benjamin what they had done to him. Yeah. So he spends this first part of it kind of antagonistic with them because is Benjamin safe? Is his father safe? Mm. Considering what they did to Joseph, what what are they going to do to the rest of them? And then Judah shows, I've changed. No, I will take the punishment for Benjamin. How could I let my father lose another son? How could mm. I, no, take me in Benjamin's place? And that's really the beauty because I remain hopeful, even for Mark, that there is the opportunity for change. God changes really horrible people mm-hmm. into people who own their sin. And instead of being the ones who cause the pain, see the pain and try to stop the pain, 
And um, I have a lot of hope. And I think if we can hang on to that hope, it equips us not to stay in an abusive situation. So Joseph was right to draw the line. Mm-hmm. You know, he, concerned his brothers are still abusive. He's going to get Benjamin out of that situation then. But also to remain hopeful that maybe they will change. Yeah. Ooh, and that's and um, that hope is really helpful because it's like, instead of we're going to get safe from them, but we're not going to kill them. You know, we're, right. we're, we, we're not going to retaliate. We're not going to retaliate. And um, I, so I, I just love Joseph's story because, like I said, he just whets my appetite for what is possible from our mysterious God. Yeah, I mean, and I think something, too, that I really gained from Joseph's story that I try to remind people about when we're talking about these kinds of things, and I need it for myself, but it's so easy to think that it happens quickly, that right. God shows up quickly. And God does show up quickly, just not he's always there. But it was a lifetime for Joseph. He always knew God was faithful. He kept serving God, but he didn't experience that hope fulfilled until he, I mean, decades later, right? Right. And so sometimes I need to read that to secure what I know about God and he is not slow in keeping his promises as I understand right. slowness. <laughs> right. Because it feels slow, doesn't it, Wendy? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, I that was uh, some of it, you know, when I heard that episode about the Mars Hill, which was seven years after the fact, I just, wow, God, you were moving all of this time. But I had no idea that this is how you would finally vindicate those whose reputation had been really harmed Yeah, in conservative circles for several years of folks believing Mark's narrative over the true one. Yeah. Well, when it comes to forgiveness, you do say some really wonderful things about forgiveness and reconciliation. And I know that's partially because it's also your story. Like you can forgive without reconciling. Will you kind of flesh that out a little bit? Maybe share a little bit about your view of that and how that could speak into some people right now who are really just clinging on, um, harboring some bitterness that they may not even know they're harboring. Yeah. Well, we do um, think sometimes we misconstrue forgiveness and reconciliation. So Mm -hmm. the thought is, someone will say you need to forgive. And what they really mean is that you need to enter back into relationship with this person and let, let it go without any care for repair or repentance. Mm. And Joseph didn't reconcile with his brothers until Judah repented, Judah changed. Um, His brothers acknowledged their sin and that was key for him to be able to enter back into relationship with them. But he also drew lines in the sand where they could not do it again to Benjamin, made sure that they weren't going to do the same kind of thing to his little brother. And so there's, you can forgive, you know, he wasn't retaliating. Forgiveness means leaving vengeance to God, Mm. that you let go of your right to, um, to vengeance and you give that over to God. Yeah. So he didn't throw them into a pit and sell them into slavery. He didn't have revenge on his brothers. He forgave them that way. But he also was drawing a line in the sand that he wasn't going to allow them to continue their harm to his little brother or to his father. But reconciliation comes, it it requires forgiveness on the part of those who have been harmed. But reconciliation is impossible without repentance and repair 
by the one who has done the wrong. That's right. And so you can even re-enter relationship or proximity to someone that you've forgiven that hasn't understood their sin, but you can't really be reconciled to them. And so the reconciliation that Joseph experienced really came on the heels of them bringing both Benjamin to him, but also bringing his father to him. So they're repairing the wrong that they've done. They're bringing these folks that they had separated him from back to him. And um, like I said, it's not not necessarily a step-by-step process, yeah. but it kind of reveals to us what this looks like when the Bible uses words, um, forgiveness, repentance, mm-hmm. really is a really great example of repentance. Yeah. I mean, it gives us a picture. It gives us a story to say like, this is possible, but there are things that you're looking for. And again, it's not like a one t- it doesn't just happen in one day. Right. right. (laughs) You don't, you don't just show up and everything's hunky dory. That's just not, and we know that. And so my heart for women with the word and just people in general is to not think that anything in God's word is a one and done, like even salvation, like, no, we don't lose it. But so often we're taught like, nope, once you pray this prayer, it's like, Oh, but my experience has been, it's a process of learning to love God like he loves us. Right. You know? And so anyways, well, I am so grateful that you have continued to walk with the Lord, even in the midst of pain, because it's a, it's a great example for us. And so for all of those who maybe want to read more of your work or buy the t-shirt, um, what is your website? Theologyforwomen.org. And then you're still, are you writing for the Gospel Coalition? Some too? I do some for the Gospel Coalition. I taught at their women's conference on suffering from my book, Companions and Suffering. So that's kind of what I'm writing on more now, right now, um, endurance and suffering and the alienation that we feel. And there are all kinds of different types of suffering. There's like physical suffering, the traditional Mm -hmm. type, but there's also a lot of what we call ambiguous loss that women experience, especially Like as a divorced woman, there's a different kind of loss there than some of our more traditional ones. And we kind of get into a bad place when we compare types of suffering and expect all of them to kind of go to the same. Um, So I like to, you know, talk about alienation and suffering and where we can find companionship in those things. Mm, Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Wendy. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Amber. I really enjoyed this. Don't forget to share this conversation with a friend. In a world where so many are sorting through church hurt, Wendy's words could serve as a balm for their souls. And again, if I can serve the women you so graciously serve through speaking at your next event, visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash speaking or email me directly at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu slash podcast.